join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkoff brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This episode of Everything Compliance, we have the full quintet, Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Mike Volkoff, Matt Kelly, and Jay Rosen. Jonathan Armstrong takes a look at the issues of returning to work after working from home experience. Mike Volkoff takes a look at the VITOL, FCPA enforcement action. Jonathan Marks considers the Dunning-Kruger effect on boards of directors. Matt Kelly looks at the Zoom FTC in Jay Rosen considers how a company can get through a monitorship. Rants and shout-outs follow the commentary and then you'll enjoy it. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast. Mike Volkoff, what has caught your attention over the past couple of weeks? Well, we just had a uh, another FCPA settlement uh, announced in a good year for the Justice Department. Uh, and I don't know how you pronounce this, but VITOL, V-I-T-O-L, which is a Swiss-based but international uh, energy trading company, agreed to pay $163.7 million to settle FCPA violations in Brazil, Ecuador, and Mexico. Now, uh, the only reason I'm bringing this up uh, is it's an interesting case where they got a a deferred prosecution agreement. Uh, They agreed to pay 163. And that uh, one important point out of this is this is the first uh, case in which the CFTC has made its appearance, and they got a settlement of $28.7 million. Uh, pushing out the SEC from uh, the sort of partnership with DOJ. So this is interesting because now we've got the CFTC to watch. They put out compliance guidance, but now we have their first coordinated FCPA enforcement action. Um, And I think it's an interesting precedent to watch. And I think, if anything, the CFTC is going to play a bigger role uh, as time goes on. Uh, Tom, I know that you have always uh, pushed the idea of how energy trading uh, markets are ripe for corruption, and this uh, this case really underscores that. So, uh, 135 million was the criminal penalty. One third of the payment was credited to uh, for Brazil if they pay Brazil. And then that leaves $90 million after the CFTC that goes to the DOJ Treasury or the same Treasury Department. But uh, 15 years of bribery over in Brazil, Brazil, Ecuador, and Mexico. One interesting trend, and I think it's something we should watch a little bit more carefully as we go on, is it's interesting to see now how DOJ is building criminal cases through the 
um, through the old tried and true technique of charging individuals, flipping them, and then building their way up here in the vital case and, and many others that we've seen this year. Uh, in this case in particular, they uh, got the cooperation of two individuals, one from Petrobras and uh, another in 2017 and 2019, they entered into plea agreements under seal with cooperation. They ended up prosecuting another individual by the name of uh, Aguilar, Javier Aguilar, who was arrested and at the border and then indicted right soon after that. So what's interesting is that they're building up these cases, getting insiders. And this case, uh, uh, Vito did not um, voluntarily disclose the conduct. And you would have think or you would have thought, and maybe this happened in 2017 after they found out that one individual's charge, that Vital would have come running in and said, oh, by the way, uh, we just discovered this bribery problem. Uh, but it's not clear when they came in and when they did that. So nonetheless, uh, and I'm not going to go through all the details, but uh, the the other interesting aspect about the bribery scheme here, particularly it, it, the bulk of it is described in Brazil with Petrobras, where they were getting access to confidential trading information relating to Petrobras's uh, oil contracts. And was the, va- the bribery scheme, one of them just involved getting confidential information about uh, Petrobras's exports, imports, planned shipping, uh, and things like that so they could assess the market. And it seemed to be incredibly valuable to Vital to get this. And so they paid over uh, $8 million in bribes for that information uh, for getting this confidential uh you know, market in information. And then they got into purchasing uh, confidential pricing information, meaning tender prices that were coming in. And Vital could then uh, make sure if they wanted a contract, they would know what the quote unquote, they called it the golden number was. And they referred to that in emails. Uh, so again, a reminder on the, the, in the tender process, on the value of confidential information and getting access to pre, uh, let's say, pre-bidding information. And we've seen, you know, some bribery schemes uh, focused on the value of that confidential information, not just winning a contract, but getting important information for that. There also was uh, not a, there was no compliance monitor imposed, uh, which is continuing with the tradition this year of no compliance monitors in any cases. Whereas in 2019, DOJ, we had three compliance monitors. This year, 2020, we've had none. Um, and I've already argued that uh, the Goldman Sachs case in Malaysia, to me, there was no excuse for not having uh, an independent compliance monitor. Uh, and if anything, it's it's kind of my cynical aspect uh, of cynical complaint about that anyways um just you can't take the russian out of the russian i know <laughs> well look it goes back to dostoevsky okay so uh anyways uh so an interesting case uh you know i don't I, i'm wondering if we are at the end of the year are we going to have an end of trump administration run 
like we did at the end of the Obama administration, where companies sort of resolve their cases rather than waiting for a new administration to come in. Because 2016, as you recall, uh, was a big year as well at the end with Alstom and some other cases. And so I'm wondering if in the next few weeks we we may see some more big cases uh, get resolved. So this may be the beginning. But this is a big case, and it's bigger than I think the press attention uh, has given it so far. But a lot of interesting issues with it. Mike, what you alluded to trading and particularly oil or energy trading being high risk. Why do you believe it's so high risk? Well, the the thing that is evident here is that dealing with state-owned enterprises in the oil market, they have their own traders. And the value uh, and these activities, imagine if you're in a trading market with a sovereign wealth fund from a foreign government. Here we've got Petrobras's traders, we've got Petro Ecuador, uh, and we had Pemex involved in one scheme. So, uh, and it's interesting because I know you've you've been an advocate for focusing on the energy energy trading market. These are often one of the more lucrative aspects of every oil and gas company is they themselves are involved in trading because they know the market so well. And there are lots of risks. So you tend to see compliance focused on, you know, market manipulation and regulatory issues. But I've never seen anybody addressing the anti-corruption risks. And to me, every interact I mean, you're, you're, you may be meeting with the Petrobras traders. You may be going to lunch with them. They may be entertaining them. But these contracts are so lucrative and they are quick you know, usually these traders are, are purchasing, you know, uh, goods that are in transit on vessels, spot market type trades. And there's a huge opportunity for bribery to g- obtain inside information. And it's clear here, this was orchestrated by senior executives at Vital and uh, at Petrobras. And uh, a lot of people benefited and, uh, you know, stole from the market. And it just, uh, if I was involved in this market, the risk assessment would be, would involve not just regulatory risks, but you have a huge anti-corruption risk and I would have controls in place to guard against that. Jonathan Armstrong, uh, what has been on your mind? Well, I think one of the things where we're seeing an awful lot of what you might call chickens come home to roost in English terms uh, is the return to work and the pandemic and this whole hybrid home working, office working type area. We've seen activity, I think, in a number of areas. For example, one area that I think is really brewing and likely to lead to trouble is the monitoring of employees whilst working from home. Some employers are using tools, including some tools that exist out of the box in Office 365 to monitor productivity of people in working in a home environment. We know that at least one data privacy regulator is on to this and making investigations. And I think some employers are collecting data without even knowing it because this is a sort of out-of-the-box function. If they haven't re, um, reset the default settings in tools like 365 or Zoom or Microsoft Teams, then they might be collecting all of this data. 
There are other issues around health data as well. So as a reminder, health data is special category data under GDPR Article 9. What this means in practical terms is you can't consent your way out of it with employees. So you can't say, for example, oh, we'll just get employees to sign off to say that they're okay with health data being uh, collected because in GDPR terms, that's uh, highly unlikely to uh, to pass mustard and to appease a regulator. And we've already seen some regulators uh, get focused on this issue. So, for example, just uh, last month in November, two unnamed companies based in the Netherlands were ordered by the uh, Dutch regulator, the uh, uh, <laughs> they're called the Autoriteit Persoonlijke Gegevens, or uh, AP to you and I, Tom. The, the AP ordered them to change their policies regarding employee temperature checks. And it seems that the AP are doing random audits of businesses in the Netherlands uh, or, or those with a presence in the Netherlands to see if they're doing this correctly. So, uh, and then another area, I think, where we've seen quite a lot of activity is around using third parties to collect health data, to collect vacation data, to collect travel data. And I think we're likely to see some issues with some of those providers as well, especially since, as we've said before, there's this double due diligence test now uh, if the data is going out with the country where it's collected. So you'll have to check that the providers uh, pass a due diligence test and the countries where they're based. And some of these operations that have been set up to have COVID support type apps are very small and are unlikely to pass those tests. And in any event, some regulators have been changing their guidance. For example, in June, the Latvian DPA said effectively that the immediate elements of the crisis were over. So there probably wasn't a need for employers to be collecting health data. And some, uh, some countries' regulators have said, well, all of this health monitoring, working out who's where and when, is the business of the state not of individual employees. Uh, the Italian Data Protection Authority, for example, has said that it's not up to employers to perform uh, COVID-19 diagnostic tests on employees. They can ask uh, its employees to carry out those tests if ordered by a competent doctor or healthcare professional, but the employer itself can't do it. And the processing of things like diagnostic data or family history can only be undertaken by healthcare professionals, not by the companies themselves. We've had similar indications in Germany as well that, uh, that healthcare professionals need to be involved. So there are many issues around the whole COVID return to work thing. And I suspect that we're going to see many more uh, in the future. And just as one other remark, Tom, I think we're also seeing uh, or a number of clients are seeing a rise in helpline calls 
And some of those are at the fairly trivial level. You know, I am concerned that a co-worker is not washing their hands or is washing their hands for 18 seconds rather than the requisite 20. Just as a reminder to compliance professionals in some jurisdictions in Europe, including in France and Germany, it may be unlawful for the helpline to handle calls at the more trivial end, and it might be a good idea to give a reminder to employees in Europe that issues like that are best dealt with by their line manager rather than by a call to the helpline, because that might be the most proportionate response. But in short, Tom, an awful lot of issues, I think, and I suspect that some data protection authorities have been somewhat lenient in the early days of the pandemic, but are going to be increasingly less lenient because they'll expect organizations to have proper policies in place now, given that this uh, situation is likely to go on for some time yet, d despite the vaccine. Jonathan, uh, where does that leave employers who might be open to other liability for either knowing uh, an employee has tested positive or is asymptomatic and not telling his co his or her co-workers or uh, going the opposite direction, uh, basically burying their head in the sand and through conscious indifference does not know an employee who may be showing symptoms uh, is actually uh, has the coronavirus or has COVID-19 does that sort of resonate across Europe as it might here in the United States? I think people are struggling with the right solution to these type of issues. I've heard of a story uh, recently, for example, where at a, a fairly large court centre, one of the judges apparently tested positive, but the court staff felt that for GDPR reasons, they couldn't tell the lawyers which judge it was, and so advised all of the lawyers that they might have been in a courtroom with a judge who had COVID. And, and that doesn't seem to me to be the right response either to tell, you know, everybody, barristers tend to be uh, almost exclusively self-employed, to sit at home for a fortnight and not to earn anything. And, you know, just think of the impact that has on other cases. You know, you might be in the middle of a four-week trial at that court and postpone it and send the jury home, et cetera, et cetera. So I think for most organizations, the answer is that they have to do a data protection impact assessment. That will help them find the right answer. And the right answer might be to take health data on employees in some circumstances, but it won't be just by sending out a bland notice and doing it by consent. It might be by using a third-party uh, doctor, for example, to help manage that. Or as some of the German regulators said, all of that has to be a last resort rather than a first resort. So you have to look initially at things like spacing, social distancing, whether it's necessary to return to the office at all. You know, if your business is functioning quite well with home working and you can make that secure, you can make that work, do you actually need to pull people back into the office, especially when at least hopefully – We've only got a matter of weeks to go now if the vaccine uh, can be rolled out quickly and, and, and is effective. 
Uh, Kelly, what's on your mind? Well, yeah. So today, Tom, I wanted to pivot over to an agency that we seldom discuss here, but is still a fairly significant civil enforcement division that compliance officers have to deal with, the Federal Trade Commission, and specifically the enforcement action it took last month against Zoom technologies for misleading statements Zoom had made about security of all of its video conferencing and Zoom calls that we've all been on for the last eight months or so, Um, and not so much what the FTC did against Zoom. We can touch on that, but I thought the more interesting thing was a dissenting statement from one of the Democratic FTC commissioners, which really reads like a foreshadowing of what we might experience for FTC enforcement in the Biden administration, particularly if you, listener, are in a tech company where security is going to be a really big, important part of what you do, and consumer privacy and data security are high priorities for you. Like, Read what this guy said, because it really does seem like a foreshadowing of things to come. Um, What Zoom actually did is uh, probably not terribly surprising. They had made statements about security of their product, which were deceiving in nature. And uh, they had been doing that over several years. But come the pandemic, once the whole world started using Zoom, suddenly the deceptive nature of these statements became much more of interest to the FTC. So they took this action. Um, They did not impose any monetary penalty against Zoom. They did appoint a outside assessor. We don't know who, which is kind of sort of like a compliance monitor, but not nearly as invasive. Um, And Zoom also has to come up with a new cybersecurity plan that it is going to implement according to what the FTC wants. Um, and yeah, you know, like, look, that's kind of run of the mill these days for the Trump administration for the last couple of years. Uh, no penalty, no invasive monitor. Please improve your program and let us know. We'll check back on you every year for a couple of years. Like that's okay. Big deal. Now this is where it gets interesting. The commissioner who l- published his dissent, his name is Rohit Chopra. He has been on the FTC since 2019 And he spent a lot of time in the Obama administration at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, where he helped uh, run the Student Loan Oversight Division at the CFPB. Uh, But he published this extensive 13-page dissent, which you typically do not see uh, in any sort of dissenting statement like that. That's highly unusual. But he really picked up on several points I want to call out. First, he talked a lot about how Zoom has seized on the pandemic to become a tech titan. And so everybody else listening, who are if you are at a tech titan, and I think you know who you are, Google and Facebook and potentially some others out there, um, Chopra was basically saying, if you are launching into being a titan, then your deceptive practices or your security shortcomings are going to be amplified in their seriousness. Uh, And I'll quote exactly from uh, one portion of his dissenting statement where he said, Zoom could have taken the time to ensure that its security was up to the right standards. But in my view, Zoom saw the opportunity for massive growth by quickly leaping into the consumer market 
allowing it to rapidly emerge as the new way to virtually celebrate birthdays and weddings and whatnot. But Zoom had had Zoom followed the law, it might all be different. So that tells me a couple of things. Um, first, Chopra is clearly stressing the importance of security by design in your products, in your marketing plans at the strategic level. Um, senior executives really need to be thinking about the security of their software products and the statements they make thereof and about. They need to be thinking about that right from the start as they're planning to conquer the world. Um, and I think that had Zoom done better at that, they might have been able to conquer the world just as quickly because like, Zoom did explode. They zoomed to the top uh, there. I said it. I'm sorry for the pun uh, during the pandemic. So, you know, I, I think a lot about that. And I think anti-corruption compliance officers, you might hear some familiar echoes that you know, in the FCPA world, we keep on talking about the importance of ethics from the very start and good business conduct and how you prioritize that right in your business plans. Well, here for tech companies that deal with a lot of consumer privacy and security issues, the FTC is saying that's just as important, that approach, that strategy for data security and privacy. Um, and then uh, the other thing that the other implication of um, Chopper's statement was here he is talking about tech titans. Uh, Zoom could have, uh, he was exact words where we should all be questioning whether Zoom and other tech titans expand their empires through deception. So if there's anybody listening from Facebook or Google uh, who are clearly staring at the Justice Department and I don't even know how many state attorneys generals who are kind of surrounding you like a, a posse of sheriffs on the hunt, like they're thinking about that. The Justice Department is thinking about that. Here is Chopra, who I suspect is a voice of things to come in the Biden administration. He's talking about it. So if you are at a tech titan or a wannabe tech titan, if you're in tech, you want to be a tech titan. That's the nature of what they do. Uh, you really have to start paying attention to what Chopra is saying, because I suspect it's going to go mainstream. Practically, that would probably mean uh, documenting your business decisions much more clearly. And that's going to all be more important because we've all read FCPA settlements where we see that the SEC or the Justice Department are talking about board minutes or executive management committee notes and what was said or not said there about corruption. Same thing for data security and privacy. That's what the, Fed, the FTC, I suspect, is going to be looking at. Um, and then a the second part here is that Chopra pivoted to a broader discussion of what he would like the FTC to do someday, like maybe the day after January 20th, 2021. Um, he is talking about a lot more help for consumers, um, such as a mechanism companies would have to apply to, to reply to formal consumer complaints. Um, a lot more sophisticated FTC investigations where they would be hiring engineers and product marketers, uh, designers, and other technical experts to help with the investigations that will still probably be run by the government lawyers. But we did see that capability wither under the Trump administration. And here's Chopper saying he wants to build that back up under a different administration. 
um, I would be thinking about that. And what would the implications be for a more sophisticated and aggressive FTC investigative capability? Um, and then this is probably one of the most uh, important points, looking at more FTC rulemaking on what constitutes unfair or deceptive practices and statements around privacy and security. Um, because right now the FTC isn't doing that. It hasn't been doing that. So we have been stuck reading the tea leaves of FTC enforcement actions. And what does that mean? And you know, how often are we right or not right? But uh, Chopper was saying the commission should stop that, take the time to publish new rules that codify a lot of what we have been seeing in FTC settlement actions. Um, and then he also did revisit the wisdom of third-party assessments of cybersecurity. And he singled out Facebook because in 2012, Facebook agreed to have a third-party assessment of its security program every year. That was done by PwC, and it started in 2012. And those assessments came back favorably year after year, including in 2014, the year that Facebook had a massive cybersecurity incident that resulted in meddling in the 2016 elections and a $5 billion fine against Facebook, when apparently a third-party assessor was saying, hey, everything's great, and it was not great. Uh, so Chopper was saying, why are we doing this, and how could we do that more effectively? Uh, and of course, he did also say monetary penalties. Um, so like I said, really extensive comments from Chopra. And a lot of it, I just can't help but think, this is what the FTC is going to be doing come 2021 and beyond. And I don't know who is going to be running the FTC under the Biden administration. The transition team for the FTC, and it has its own, um, is currently being run by a former deputy general counsel of the Federal Trade Commission. Will she wind up being the next FTC chairman? We don't know. She does uh, have extensive knowledge of FTC operations because she had worked there for many, many, many years, landed up as deputy GC before that she left during the Obama administration. But um, or actually, she did last into the Trump administration. Her name is Heather Hipsley. Uh, but that's the sort of thing that we have to start thinking about. Uh, we're going to see modernized enforcement for modern problems, which are generally, you know, there's anti-corruption is never going to go away. But cybersecurity and privacy, they are quickly moving up the priority cycle uh, or the priority list for companies. And you're going to have to think about this because the regulators who are going to be in charge in another six weeks, they're thinking about it right now. And they've got some big plans. Jonathan Marks, you have a question for Matt. Uh, Matt, I, I, I applaud you for bringing this up. I've been following it myself and find the fact that um, you've glommed onto this to be, you know, quite remarkable. And I think people should definitely speak up, uh, you know, or, or at least be paying attention to what's happening here um, as sort of a precursor as to what's to follow. One of the things that you had mentioned was as though that PwC, and it wouldn't matter whether it's PwC or anyone for that matter, doing sort of this, you know, independent assessment. I, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are, because there's a lot of other areas where um, outside firms are doing these types of assessments. And um, I'm just wondering whether they're getting the right amount of attention. You know, for example, in the in the IIA, we have something called quality assessment reviews, where you have an outside third party come in and assess independently, as opposed to assess the internal audit department. We all know uh, from a compliance program perspective, everyone is 
really encouraged to get an independent third-party review. And I'm just wondering whether there's the right level of um, or the right focus on these things and they're getting to the right people and that we're doing the right things in order to provide, you know, both independent and candid feedback, not only with regards to security and privacy, but also internal audit and compliance. And I'm just curious as to your thoughts because you've been in the compliance space for a really long time and I know that you're familiar with what goes on uh, with regards to the quality assessment reviews. And uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious. Well, my question would be more, how do we put a sort of formal structure or standards around what the third party assessor does, who can be a third party assessor? Um, look, any of the big four, I have no doubt that they could do it. Uh, how well may they be actually be able to do it? I don't know. But like, Assessing Facebook is no joke. You're going to have to be large for that. But um, for even a lot of smaller firms, if you get an outside audit of your data security controls, that's a SOC 2 audit. Now, look, getting a SOC 2 audit is nobody's idea of a good time. It is extensive and onerous, but any number of people out there can say, oh, yeah, I can do a SOC 2 audit. Um, and there are professional firms out there that say that they do SOC 2 audits and um, some of them are very large for large companies. Some of them are very small for small companies. Some of them are boutiques. And it's more like, I guess the, a good analogy would be kind of like a self-appointed compliance monitor. And we have a lot more structure these days around what a compliance monitor does. The Justice Department is going to specify what it wants the monitor to do. And there are only a certain number of firms that can credibly say, we can do this. I mean, Jay, your firm is, is one of them. Um, and that's all in the anti-corruption context. But I don't know that we've got enough sophistication and body of knowledge around how would we want third-party assessors to handle this. I mean, clearly, validating your data security effectiveness is going to be really important. Um, but if anybody out there can say, I'm a qualified security analyst and there's a designation, you're a QSA, uh, you know, how are we going to put more structure around that to make sure something like what happened with Facebook doesn't become the norm? Um, I'm not sure. I think, I, I wouldn't say this is a crisis of epidemic proportions. We're all running around validating controls the wrong way. But I do think we're just at the starting of we're going to need to figure that out over the next 10 years or so, how to do this as part of effective corporate governance. Um, how can you keep a good, strong, independent, validated idea over data security controls? And how is the government going to weigh in on it? Because they're going to start to weigh in on it much more than they had before. Um, I, that's the best I can say right now. But I, I do kind of see parallels between where we are today with this and where corporate compliance monitors were like circa 2008, 2010. We all knew they were important. We had a rough idea of what they should do, but the maturity of that is nowhere near where it is now today. Now, so I don't know, get back to me in like 2025 and I might have a better answer. No, I, I think, I think that makes sense. I'm just, um, I'm just wondering, though, you know, when companies are using those external assessments as sort of a crutch or something, to, you know, to give the, you know, the, the stakeholders some confidence. I, 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 I think I, I hear what you're saying. There needs to be 
I, I think there needs to be a better framework and I think there needs yeah. to be more accountability as to what's being done and how that information gets communicated internally and who's involved and, um, you know, how the process, be, you know, basically is conducted. Otherwise, it's probably not worth anything more than the paper it's written on. I, I would say that the potential damage of doing this poorly is far greater than the potential damage of an inept compliance monitor missing another FCPA scandal. That's not going to expose the credit card numbers of 100 million people. Uh, right. you, screwing up a data security as audit, yeah, that could. Um, so like the, the analogy only goes so far, but I think there are a lot of parallels we need to try and think about. Jonathan Marks, what is on your mind these days? I guess moving right along from what Matt just talked about, I mean, some of the things that I keep thinking about is, you know, what's going on at the board level. And Matt mentioned corporate governance. You know, there's, there's been a lot of discussion around compliance lately, which there should be. But I think more importantly, I think governance is sort of the, you know, sort of the, Thing that gets pushed to the side and it really shouldn't be. And some people are fans of governance and believe that, you know, having a good governance framework is necessary in order to have a good risk management program, which drives compliance for sure. But what, I, what I'm really focusing in on and, and some of the things that I keep hearing and was a topic that I discussed this week with you, Tom, is, you know, sort of this, um, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is, you know, sort of this overconfidence or lack of self-awareness. And, you know, I think, when we look at some of the cases that have come through um, Am, Am South, with you know Am South, the bank, you know, with regards to the board's fiduciary duty and their oversight responsibilities, um, there's there's a couple of themes that I keep seeing in there, and those are red flag themes. Uh, and then you had Clovis Oncology, which was another one. Uh, recently, we had you know Bluebell Ice Cream, you know, all big, huge, screaming messages to the board with regards to. Uh, their oversight role, their fiduciary responsibilities and making sure that these compliance programs work. Now, you know, talking about security and privacy and cyber, I mean, from a risk perspective, certainly, you know, those are some of the top risks that are on the mind of, of many out there. But um, it's, it's, it's natural that most boards, um, are, most board members are, are highly self-assured and confident in their judgment and abilities. And some of them I think they're kind of overstepping a little bit. And I think when that meanders its way into senior management, it even causes more issues. So, you know, the dangers of overconfidence, you know, are really not under, you know, not readily, readily understood. You know, when you have somebody in a position, uh, a stakeholder, a gatekeeper in a position where they're supposed to be doing a job and they believe that they're an expert in that job and they're really not, and they're actually afraid to be exposed. So, you know, they continue to do the best they possibly can. However, they're still leaving some risk on the table, and you you can't recognize that this individual is 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 over their skis or doesn't have the skills and capabilities to handle such a thing. You know, I think that's one of those risks that is sort of understated. It's really an understated risk. You know, it goes back to the human element, something that I'm pretty passionate about. And so, you know, um, I keep the more and more I hear about what's going on and what's you know you know what's what's being talked about from you know, where we are and where we're going to be. And when we look at the evaluation of corporate compliance programs and we try to understand, you know, the hallmarks of an effective compliance, the 11 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, you know, I, I just wish that more people would pay more attention to the human element. Um, and, and that is, you know, it, it, it not only starts with understanding the gatekeepers. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why, 
in our risk assessment process, when we go through and do a risk assessment process, we understand who those gatekeepers are and we actually profile them. You know, do they have the skills, capabilities and experience to, to handle the issues that are thrown at them? If not, I think that really does affect the risk. I don't think most people in, in, infuse the human factor into their risk assessment process. And I'm, and I'm here today to try to hopefully change people's minds because I think it does make a big, it, it's a big deal. You know, and, and hindsight's great because it always gives you the answer. But, you know, when we're doing root cause or postmortems with regards to failures or things that went wrong, you know, a lot of times, you know, the discussion around or the root cause could be is that person just didn't have the skills or capabilities to handle what's thrown at them. They're, they weren't self-aware enough to realize that they needed help or they were afraid to seek out help for, you know, because they, they were concerned about the moniker that would be put on them from an, that they would be labeled as incompetent or possibly lose their jobs. And I think that that really needs to change today. I think that, you know, if we're going to be more business intelligent and move more towards enterprise resiliency, again, concepts that we continuously talk about and banter about, you know, it's not only having um, all these things in place, but I also think, you know, sort of this, you know, emotional intelligence, this human factor stuff that we keep talking about really needs to be understood. You know, um, Matt talked about having engineers involved in FCPA compliance and, and whatnot. You know, uh, you, you'll laugh, but, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, I watch a TV show, which I'm not going to mention. It's only one of few that I do watch, but they actually have a psychologist on board there to understand and get into the minds of the people, you know, within the organization. You know, I wonder if that's something that is, you know, not... I mean, I don't know of any companies out there that actually do it. Maybe they do. I'm sure they do. I'm sure there's a few. But I often wonder if those types of specialties, you know, moving more past human capital and human resources, but if those types of things to really understand, you know, human behavior and the toxicity levels that are in, you know, within the culture of a company or an organization are, are, are probably growing more important and compound that with what's going on today with the pandemic. And the fact that we can't walk around and see people or look at human expression or understand how people are acting or interacting, I think it makes for something that's very interesting and something that I think from, a again, sort of an underestimated risk here is this Dunning-Kruger effect. And, you know, if, if, if history hasn't taught us anything, it's taught us that, you know, I think a lot of times, like I said, when we do an autopsy or root cause or whatever, you know, when it comes down to we can understand why a machine fails. We, you know, what, what Matt talked about was we can't understand why a machine does so well, but we can understand most of the time why a machine fails or a part fails or things of like that. Those things are easy. But when a human fails or a human breaks down, I'm not so sure we spend a whole lot of time trying to figure that out. So, you know, um, you know, my message, I guess, today for the audience is, you know, from a compliance perspective, we all know that the risk assessment should drive the compliance program. I'm really encouraging everyone to infuse the human element into that and build in sort of your emotional, uh, the emotional and, you know, intellectual intelligence with regards to understanding who the key gatekeepers are, you know, when doing your risk assessment process and understanding whether they do have the skills and capabilities to handle those particular issues. Um, and that's something that's being monitored on a regular and ongoing basis. I think if we could do that, I think we'll have a better result. I think we'll become so to speak, more business intelligent. I think the feedback that we'll get from that will also make us enhance our compliance programs and maybe, you know, actually have better training programs than what's going on today. You know, everybody always wants to check a box with regards to compliance, 
hey, look, we have a compliance and ethics program, but, you know, a program on self-awareness and your ability to reach out and across the aisle and collaborate with people when you don't know and having an organization that doesn't basically, you know, slap somebody on the wrist for reaching out and getting help um, or looks at somebody differently for communicating and collaborating, you know, I think is something that we all should strive for. So that that's kind of where I am today with all this. But I, I do think that it's it's going to take that in order to change and get us where we need to be. And I think what the, you know, what the outside, you know, what the regulators are really expecting as well. Jonathan, um, you started off by talking uh, or started off by uh, at the board level. Yeah. And I was wondering, uh, would you suggest an approach where you actually start at the board level, not only to provide better corporate governance, governance, but hopefully get a tone from the very top of an organization uh, to, to start to try to change some of these things? I think that's right, Tom. And that's, you know, certainly, I mean, tone from the top is certainly important here. Um, you know, and and getting the boards to be more self-aware about what they know and what they don't know and how they're looking at senior leadership. Because again, I think it's a waterfall concept, right? You know, if the board has this this level of overconfidence and doesn't really understand, you know, the skills and capabilities of senior management, what they can handle, what they can't handle, then and and senior management doesn't have the skills to recognize that with their own managers and the levels below them, then I think what you basically have is you're building this house of cards that eventually is going to blow down. So, you know, much more, you know, like we, you know, we're looking at, you know, really the the game at the board level is really stepped up. I mean, you just, you know, I often wonder, I mean, I sit on a board, I'm a chairman of a board and I sit in meetings, you know, every now and again, and I wonder what people are thinking, what type of prep work they're doing. Do they really understand how the business operates? Do they really understand sort of that human element with regards to the CEO and what he or she is doing. Um, and so I, I do think that it really does start at the board level, Tom. And I think it's something that, you know, if you're going to be on a board, you really take, you need to take that really seriously. And if you're the chairman of the board um, or you're part of the governance committee and you're trying to develop a board and you're looking at skill sets, you know, it's nice to have a, a CPA or a lawyer or an expert in that particular space that serves some time there. But I'm, I'm, I'm really wondering whether we really need to have somebody on there that really does understand human behavior a lot more um, deeply than, than, than what we have, how, how we've looked at it in the past. Jay Rosen, what is on your mind? These Thanks, Tom. Uh, what I want to talk about in my brief few minutes is what does it take for a company to successfully get through a corporate monitorship? At the end of November, Chuck DeRoss, a partner at the law firm of Morrison & Forster, former chief of the FCPA unit and Odebrecht independent compliance officer, certified that Odebrecht SA's anti-bribery compliance program. He certified that the program is designed to prevent future violations of anti-corruption laws, including the U.S.'s Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. In this process, more than 900 employees, including members of the board of directors, were ultimately interviewed as part of the monitorship. And the monitor team also traveled to seven countries, reviewed about 30,000 documents, and tested more than 5,000 transactions. Odebrecht's chairman said that the conclusion of the monitoring and the certification given by the DOJ are the most eloquent attestation that Odebrecht has learned from its own mistakes and has reached the same level as other corporations that operate with ethics, integrity, and transparency. So besides the flowery boiler, boiler point language 
that they have reached the level of other ethical global competitors and corporations. As David Byrne from the Talking Heads once asked, well, how do we get here? Besides, um, so I'd like to take a brief look at this journey and what it takes for a company to not only survive a monitorship, but to grow as an organization and thrive post-monitorship. At the beginning of this process, there can be a wide variety of concerns for those about how they work with the monitor. From a corporate perspective, these concerns include the cost of the monitorship, the impact on the bottom line, opening the books to an outsider, and interference with business operations. These concerns can be exacerbated by a fear that the monitor does not understand the business of the organization or even how business is done in the real world. So the first fear is, are monitors an extension of the government? Many companies see monitors as an extension of the government and believe that monitors are junior G-men and investigators tasked by the government to conduct ongoing investigations. Some of these fears are understandable, particularly if a company has not had a prior positive experience with the use of an independent monitor or the company's own compliance department. While some of it may have to do with fear of the unknown, one concern is simply the extra cost associated with bringing on a monitor. Quite often this fear can sometimes be driven by war stories that monitors will have mission creep and continue the investigation even after a resolution has been reached. Another concern is that many monitors are former prosecutors themselves and still retain a prosecutorial mindset. This can lead many companies and their employees to fear a gotcha mentality of the monitor who is looking for additional issues to run back to the government or regulators with throughout the mon their monitorship investigations. So how does a company avoid bringing its justified fears to life? The company needs to have thorough discussions with monitor candidates and address the following questions. What is the approach that the monitor will be taking in the during the re resolution of the monitorship? What's the approach in a meeting or an interview with mid-level employees in a branch office? Is that person going to feel as if they're under attack or are they brought in to explain all processes, good as well as bad, that are going, to, going on so that the monitor can make helpful recommendations? Next, the company and independent monitor need to understand the terms of the resolution agreement. In addition to the monitor interview process, Companies should understand that the terms of any monitorship are set in the resolution agreement. Therefore, it's important not only to address these issues during settlement discussions, but also to take care in the drafting of such agreements to remove as many ambiguities as possible. The key in drafting the resolution agreement is to lay out the scope properly and tightly designed. When ambiguities arise in the process of a monitor's work, the monitor should engage with both sides as a facilitator to help the parties come together and to resolve these issues. Companies need to have a thorough understanding of the monitorship process. This understanding comes from discussions, reviewing, and negotiating the scope of agreement and hiring experienced monitors who understand their role and more importantly, what is not their role going forward. So after considering these concerns, taking a leap of faith and three and a half years of hard work a company like Odebrecht can not only survive our monitorship, but from our experience, can position itself for future growth and success as an ethical business organization post-monitorship.
Jay, Jay. The, uh, I really um, was intrigued by the um, your opening remarks around starting out and the different types of fears a company had, particularly that uh, the monitor is an extension of the government. What, uh, how can that be done other than just building of trust, or is it really as simple as that? Um, yeah, I, I think it's as simple as that, but if you kind of imagine um, there's a, a plank across two sides of the shore and on the water underneath that plank, there's a shark that's kind of swimming around. When we are a monitor and we come into that situation, we are very precariously balanced on that board. And we quite literally find ourselves in no man's land. And so, um, you know, there's a Billy Joel song called It's a Matter of Trust. And I think you hit it on the head that when we get in there, we have to earn our stripes and we have to prove to the government that we are not only there solely blindly supporting the client who is being monitored. And at that same time, we need to take a look at the fear that the company has that we are there looking to get them on some more things. So the, the, when you have three years to work with a client, um, you really are able to gain that trust. And one of the things that really is the proof in the pudding is we've seen several com companies that we've worked with on mandatory monitorships that when executives leave that company and go to another company that is not in trouble, they have become so bought into the monitoring process that they bring us on in a proactive basis. So I think if you're able to get in there and we've been doing, I think we've done about 850 of these in the last 17 years, so we know how to get in there, how to uh, gain that trust, and how to make it a win-win proposition for both sides. Matt, do you have a comment for Jay? I do have uh, two points, I guess, uh, to make quickly. First, it was very interesting to hear what Chuck Duras has actually done with Odebrecht, like the actual details, which um, I don't think we hear enough of that about compliance monitors, so it's always refreshing. But Jay, when you had picked out the point that that most compliance monitors come from a prosecutorial background, and then they wind up kind of sort of as prosecutors uh, running around doing their monitorship. And that can be a problem. But I, I just, I can't help but think it of what uh, we had talked about with the FTC earlier, and how are we going to have basically data security compliance monitors? Where are they going to come from? Um, how... Can they be sophisticated, but not prosecutorial, especially since many of them probably aren't going to be prosecutors? And compliance monitors overall, how can they be sophisticated, but not prosecutorial if many of them in the more traditional anti-corruption world, if they are prosecutors? It's just a good point to ruminate on about you know, where does this environment that we live in, where did it come from? And a lot of it comes from things like that, just the nature of who is involved. And they, so far, they, many of them have come from the prosecutorial world. Gentlemen, we are now to our fan favorite shout outs and rants section. So Matt Kelly, do you have a shout out or rant for us today? I, I do have a shout out today. I'm trying to be positive amid the gloomy COVID news. Uh, just a shout out to Moderna and to Pfizer for both of them developing vaccines for COVID in unbelievably record time and doing it with what had been an unproven technology 
many years ago, before I wrote about compliance, I wrote about technology for a living, and that R, the mRNA technology that they had been using was totally untested. Nobody really was sure that this would be able to work, but you know, eventually we get there someday. Along comes COVID, and number one, thanks to this technology, we sort of decoded the genome of this virus in record time, in I think about six weeks, and that was back in January. And to go from we have decoded the virus to we have a vaccine that we can put in people's arms, and we have, and now the United Kingdom is already starting that, and the United States is going to within weeks, and the rest of the world. To do that in 10 months, it would have been unthinkable even just a few years ago. And I looked up the fastest vaccine development time prior to this was the mumps vaccine, which I think they perfected back in the 50s. Took them four years to figure out how to do that. And humanity has now done it in 10 months. So hats off to Pfizer and to Moderna for taking a gamble on this unproven but now proven technology. And uh, look, you know, occasionally when mankind's back is against the wall and we have tried all other ways to screw it up, occasionally we can still do great things here. Jonathan Marks, do you have a shout out or a rant for us? Uh, mine's more of a rant. I, I don't understand what the NFL is doing. Uh, I don't necessarily think it's fair that they move a game twice for COVID and yet they make other teams play, you know, down some of their key players. Um, more of a rant is, I believe, Jeffrey Laurie, if you're out there and you're listening to the Compliance Podcast today, if you don't know what the Dunning-Kruger effect is, please call me because um, Doug Peterson is has no self-awareness whatsoever. And um, I have my Eagles jersey now hanging in my garage um, where I think it belongs at this particular moment. Hey, Rosen, you have uh, high standards to follow. I do, and I'm going to ride on his coattails, scratching my head about another NFL decision. The San Francisco 49ers will play their next home games in Arizona Cardinals Stadium in Phoenix. This last-minute jury-rigged plan came about after officials in Santa Clara, California, where the 49ers stadium is, wisely decided to ban contact sports through late December to try to stop the spread of the COVID virus. But there's a problem. The State Farm Stadium is in Maricopa County, Arizona, which had an average daily rate of 42.7 cases per 100,000 residents, well above the alarming rate of 29.5 per cases of 100,000 here in Santa Clara County. So I think this is a head scratcher and one of those things that makes you go, huh? And uh, I'm wondering, is the NFL more concerned about playing out its schedule and ratings and getting paid than taking care of the safety and well-being of their players. So for my shout out this week, we have a visual cue for the uh, Everything Compliance Gang and hopefully an audio cue. I've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan. For those not seeing this at home, you just heard Darth Vader speak. My shout out this week is to David Prowse. He was the original actor who played Darth Vader in the original trilogy, uh, episodes four, five, and six. Uh, you did not hear David Prowse's voice because you heard James Earl Jones' voice. Prowse is a, uh, a very strong uh, Southwestern English accent that was uh, in deemed inappropriate for uh, a villain with the gravitas of Darth Vader. 
So you never heard his voice. Unfortunately, you never even saw him because in the one scene where Darth Vader's face is revealed, they actually used another actor, uh, not David Prowse. Uh, but David Prowse was a heavy high star in the Star Wars firmament. Uh, he uh, bought, brought a huge amount of gravitas to the role. So here's to you, David. Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a shout out and or rant for us today? Well, I'd like to shout out to somebody who's got an extreme workload coming up and also is going to have the most difficult challenges in remaining socially distant. And that's, of course, Father Christmas. He's going to have to visit many houses this year and go down many chimneys. He's got no opportunity to go into wide spaces, and he's got a team of reindeers who he's going to have to maintain and keep COVID safe as well. So my shout-out is to Father Christmas. And if to any of our listeners have children at home or grandchildren at home, could I also ask them to leave a small pot of sanitizer for Father Christmas? Because he's got many children to uh, visit, and we don't want him to be at risk this Christmas time. Mike Volkoff, do you have a shout-out and or rant for us today? I've got an or rant. You said and or, and an or rant. This rant is uh, Goldman Sachs, Gary Cohen, who former head of Goldman Sachs. I don't know if he is when he returned from the Trump administration. But right now, uh, as you know, in reaction to the Goldman Sachs FCPA settlement, um, Goldman Sachs uh, decided to seek a clawback against their officials for various bonus payments, uh, including Gary Cohen. And guess who, of all the executives, of all of them, who's the only one to fight the clawback? Gary Cohen. So if you want uh, if you want an insight into a man's soul or a woman's soul, uh, this is certainly indicative. And the fact that he could sell his soul uh, to work for the Trump administration, uh, to me, uh, this is just a further indicator of how low he can go. But uh, to fight the clawback in this case is uh, really ridiculous given the brazen nature of the bribery scheme and the fact that everybody benefited in their bonus payments as a result of uh, ripping off the Malaysian people and and the, the Economic Development Fund. So, Gary, rest in peace. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you have uh, any topics that you would like the Everything Compliance Gang to explore, please leave a voicemail message on Stovepipe. It's on the Compliance Podcast Network. Also, you can shoot me an email at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Once again, thanks again for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again. We are working on a video option for Everything Compliance, so that will be an exciting option for us to put forward to you. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.